Hey, everybody, just a quick note before we start the show. This was a great guest. I was happy to have him on. Very fascinating to listen to. Uh, we had some technical issues during the interview where his screen would freeze up, so we've edited out those parts. Uh, so you may notice a few hard edits, though we're trying to soften those edits as much as possible during the interview. But I just want to let you know that's why it's there. It's not because we're censoring anything or cutting anything out. We just took out that awkwardness so that it flows a lot better for you out there in the audience. So with that said, let's roll the show. The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Welcome to another episode of 9-11 Freefall. I am the host, Andy Steele, and we have a great guest today. His name is Warren Smith, and he has been a registered architect in New York State since 1989 and a principal of Warren Temple Smith Architects, LLC, since 1992. He was also a captain in the U.S. Naval Reserve, retiring in 2007, and a commander in the New York Naval Militia, having retired now in 2022. He is a signatory to AE 9-11 Truths Petition, and we are going to be learning more about him today. So let's go ahead and add him into the stream here. Warren, welcome to 9-11 Freefall. Thank you, Andy. Good to be here. So you have such an interesting background, and it's so important for our movement and our cause because of some of the things that the other side says, and we don't take that too seriously anymore, but it's, it's fun to circle around and revisit some of these talking points and address them every once in a while. <clears throat> I want to start with your military service, including the New York Naval Militia, which I didn't even know was a thing. And right. I actually lived in New York State for most of my life. So uh, basically, tell us about that. Tell us about your naval experience. Okay. Well, going back to the beginning, I was uh, in architecture school and decided I needed uh, a little break before sort of getting my degree and uh, license and sort of settling down my chosen life path in architecture. So uh, after my second year, I, uh, I joined the Navy. And um, because I already had a bachelor's degree uh, under my belt and was working on my master's, I uh, joined as an officer, had to do four months of officer candidate training in Newport, Rhode Island where you're essentially an enlisted person in a, an E-5 status for four months. Upon uh, graduating from that program, you are commissioned an ensign in the U.S. Navy with an obligation to serve, I believe it was four years of active duty at the time. Um, and based on your class ranking, you get to choose your assignment. And I had a, a pretty good class ranking. So I chose initially to go to a, uh, a guided missile destroyer based in Yokosuka, Japan. It was part of the Midway Aircraft Carrier Battle Group. And one of the advantages of a, a forward deployed ship with a battle group overseas is that you operate it a lot. The ship was out most of the time. It wasn't sitting in port. So whenever the Midway went underway, uh, we were part of her battle group and went with her. Um, and we were the, actually the flagship of the destroyer squadron. So if the Commodore came on board, uh, we had him. We had his staff along with the, uh, the crew and staff of the ship. But uh, so we operated in the Western Pacific throughout um, the first couple of years. I was... Uh, on active duty in the Navy, based in Japan, as I said. We went to Korea, we went to Singapore, went to the Philippines, really all over Southeast Asia, and uh, did a lot of exciting, um, I learned a lot, a lot of exciting operations, but the uh, the really interesting thing you get uh, in the Navy, and I think it's true of any military career as a young officer, is you get a level of responsibility that you really don't get in a, a commensurate civilian job until later on in your career. You're responsible for all the people on the ship, all the equipment on the ship, um, and, you know, in a very personal way. You know, if it's the middle of the night and you're the office of the deck and something strange is going on, uh, you are the one responsible to the captain of the entire ship. So I, I learned a great deal, um, a lot of great role models, uh, examples of, of effective and less effective leadership that I took with me throughout my career. Um, so after two years there um, on the on the destroyer based in Japan, 
I transferred to a new guided missile cruiser under construction in Pasigua, Mississippi at the Engle shipyard there. And that was the USS Yorktown. And upon the commissioning of the Yorktown on July 4th um, at uh, 1984 at, um, at Yorktown, Virginia, we operated out of the, uh, the Norfolk Naval Base in the, um, in the Atlantic Caribbean uh, for the rest of my active duty tour. Once I, I finished my active duty tour in the Navy, I returned to New Haven, I did my last year of architecture school, got my degree, moved to New York City, uh, worked with a, uh, a significant firm there, Cone Pedersen Fox, working on really big buildings, office towers, hotels, some, some residential, but, um, you know, apartment residential, um, and, and learned a great deal there. Um, when one of the partners uh, from KPF left and joined someone else to start a firm downtown, I moved with him and, and worked for another firm, May and Pinska, for a couple of years um, in downtown. And uh, I guess around that time is when I purchased a house in Rhinebeck, New York, in the Hudson Valley, deciding I needed a, uh, a weekend place to, to get away from the city. A lot of people go to Long Island. Um, the traffic is impossible getting out to Long Island. It didn't have a lot of appeal. Um, I grew up in New Jersey. I didn't need to be there on weekends. Uh, I, I, moved, I bought a house in Rhinebeck, and after using it as a weekend house for a year or something, I basically decided to uh, move here full time. And uh, when I did that, I opened a practice. And I've been here now for going on 30 years. My um, practice obviously has grown a lot. Um, takes a lot of work to sort of move to a place where you don't know much of anybody and, and start a business, but it worked out very well. And um, I really have more work than I, uh, than I can handle. So um, it's a good position to be in, as I'm thinking finally it may be about retirement someday. But uh, that's where we are right now. Well, I'll tell you what, when you do something you love doing, you know, retirement is probably the last thing on most people's minds, but it's great to be able to have that sort of, uh, you know, nest egg built up. And, you know, it's fascinating, too, to hear you talk about this, because, like I said, the New York Naval Militia, I didn't even know that was a thing, as I said. Uh, is that like is that affiliated with the U.S. government or is that uh, a separate independent entity? So if, if you're if you live in New York State and you're a member of the Navy Reserve, Coast Guard Reserve or Marine Corps Reserve, you have the option of affiliating with the New York Naval Militia, which works alongside the Army and Air National Guard in responding to state emergencies. So we fall under the jurisdiction of the governor of the state of New York. Uh, and under that, there's the adjutant general. Every state has an adjutant general. It's a member of the uh, National Guard. And we work along with them to, again, um, respond to any state emergency, whether it's um, natural or man-made. And um, in fact, Naval militia members were very active in the response to 9-11. Uh, that really sort of uh, got us a lot more visibility than we had had to that time. But the Naval Militia actually has existed in New York State. Um, it was part of one of the earliest charters. It was like the very early version of the Naval Reserve. And it's existed in New York State for about 140 years. So um, it's, it's um, a very legitimate organization. It, it is, um, again, purely open to members of the, um, the Navy, uh, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard Reserve. And obviously, federal duty will always preempt state duty. So if you are on a state duty assignment and you get called up by your federal affiliate, you'll have to go to the federal duty. But as long as not, you have the option to, to serve New York State. And if you're brought on active duty, you get paid for the time you're on duty. Um, New York State has a, has a different retirement age from active service. So in fact, you can serve in the Naval Militia until age 68. Um, I retired um, earlier this year to give um, another colleague an opportunity to spend a couple of years as commander of the Naval Militia, but it's a great way to get around the state and uh, see all the people that are basically working day to day and the COVID response, um, nursing home assignments, uh, you name it, flooding, any kind of disaster, we have people on duty alongside the Army and Air National Guard helping out. Hey, it's fascinating to see all the different strata of emergency response and you hear about things that you uh, weren't familiar with before and all a lot of people working hard to try to do the right thing in the face of uh, just various disasters that New York State has faced over the years. I remember Superstorm Sandy. I don't think I got it as much as where I was up in central New York, but I know that a lot of people had, uh, you know, had a lot of damage to their homes and such and uh, it was a very difficult time for them. Uh, now, before we get into 9-11 and all that stuff, I just want to know what lured you into architecture? Because it seems like, two, on the, on the surface at least, two very different things, the military and architecture. What drew you into uh, that field of study? I think I was interested in architecture from a very young age. Uh, I was always drawn to uh, 
to visit visit buildings and sites, you know, historic homes or, or other um, interesting properties. Um, I, I, I just was something that was always appealing to me. I, I considered, you know, before I went to college, whether I wanted to do law or architecture. Um, and and it, law has a lot of um, a lot of advantages, but uh, you know, it was during the time of uh, the Nixon administration, and, and John Dean and others were testifying about all the stuff they've been doing, and. I thought maybe law isn't the, the best career. Maybe maybe architecture is a better bet. And I, I never regretted that choice. I think uh, you know architecture is truly where my interests lie. And um, I mean, yeah, I'm very <laughs> very pleased with how things are developed. Well, you certainly totally don't have to compromise. Like this. <laughs> Completely different, but you don't have to compromise yourself in any way. You can reach into your artistic side, and there's a lot of uh, artistic talent that goes into architecture. And of course, building knowledge as well, which is why it's called uh, AE for 9/11 Truth here, because uh, you know the architects are the ones uh, who you know help design the buildings along with the engineers. So, uh, typical question I ask everybody: I want to know your story. Where were you on the day of 9/11? How did you hear the news of what was going on? I was here in Rhinebeck. Um, it was early in the morning, of course. My next door neighbor, I think, was out in the backyard and came over and said, you know, a building, a plane just flew into one of the World Trade Center towers. And uh, I hadn't heard that. So I turned on the uh, the radio, I guess, to get the news. And then, of course, um, when I heard that a second plane had struck the second tower, um, I realized it wasn't an accident. It was clearly something very deliberate was going on. And um, I think within, you know, a short time, of course, we heard about the Pentagon and so forth. That very day, of course, I got a call. Uh, I was still in the Naval Reserve. I got a call from uh, commander of my unit, which interestingly was uh, Area Air Defense Atlantic, which was a, a unit set up to uh, position naval uh, missile ships, vessels um, close to harbors to defend cities if need be, um, which is kind of an unusual concept at the time. But we think of uh, Navy projecting power through aircraft, aircraft carriers, through missiles from subs and ships, and of course, um, ships engaging each other, but the idea of using uh, missile defenses, uh, mo mobile missile defenses on ships to protect cities is kind of a new concept. Anyway, I was called and directed to report to the Northeast Air Defense Sector Headquarters in Rome, New York, part of uh, um, NORAD, North American Air Defense System. I think now it's just called Eastern Air Defense Sector under the uh, auspices of the Air Force, but it was a joint a joint facility with uh, Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps people there. And um, my specific role was to be a liaison officer for, for the Navy as needed um, going forward in, in the U.S.'s response to whatever had happened that day. So uh, I either that afternoon or the next morning drove up to, uh, to Rome, New York, and um, reported for duty and was there, for, I think, for about a week. Um, on, on watch rotation, uh, basically watching what was going on, learning about developments, um, you know, hearing a lot of uh, speculation, of course, because we were all speculating at the time, and um, looking at the endless replay of the of the attacks and the, the building collapses and so forth. Um, and it was it, it was just a very interesting time. At, at the time, of course, there was a lot of sense that maybe there would be further attacks. This was part of a larger coordinated effort. Uh, and so watching all air travel was shut down, as you'll recall, and watching um, what was happening and, and where uh, specific air or permitted um, civilian air was operating was, was part of the operation. But um, yes, it was, it was kind of an intense time. Um, I don't know that we had any tremendous insights um, at that particular time, because a lot of things have only emerged later. But certainly there are, there are questions about what happened and, and how it happened and why it happened that that um, came up at the time that, that are still um, un, unanswered or not fully answered. Um, and I, it was it was just a uh, an interesting way to be part of the response. As I mentioned, that was while I was in the Navy Reserve, the New York Naval Militia was actually down in New York City working with the uh, firemen and police and uh, National Guard in response to things that happened there. So, God bless them. You know, it's interesting, too, you mentioned Rome, New York. That is actually right near where I live. It's pretty much the same area. A lot of people worked at the Air Force Base where I was. And when that movie United 93 came out, it was kind of surreal to see it portrayed and, and um, not fictional, but in sort of the Hollywood setting, because it's like, mm -hmm. wow, that's my, that's my local area. Um, <clears throat> it was a very important part of 9-11 for the reasons that you just uh, laid out. 
So what made you begin to question how the towers came down? Well, I think there were, there, again, you watch the footage enough and you start to say, there's things about this that, that don't seem to make sense. And the, the thing that, that struck me, I think, first was um, Building 7. Um, it wasn't struck by a plane. It was much later in the day. Um, it had, um, you know, there were some, some fires there apparently. But um, for it to suddenly just uh, collapse basically on its footprint later that day seemed completely out of context of what was going on nearby. Um, there were many other buildings around. They, they weren't collapsing. And the, uh, I mean, the towers themselves were strange because, as you know, each, each of those collapsed about exactly the same amount of time after they were initially struck. Um, and that, that seemed kind of an odd coincidence. Um, aside from the, the fact that they fell and how they fell and so forth. And, and of course, you all explored that a lot more since then. But, you know, one's initial, one's initial instinct is not to question what you're seeing so much as say, okay, this is what happened and, you know, we'll, we'll sort of try to figure it out. And, of course, the whole focus that we heard um, nationally was on going after the people that did it. And it was striking how quickly there was a determination made that, Somehow the bin Ladens were involved and they got the rest of the family out of the country. And it, it seemed like there was an awful lot of, uh, I don't want to say foreknowledge, but, but it seemed that intelligence services very quickly said, we need to do this and we need to do that. Um, and there was certainly a lot of questioning about how all of this could have happened without any hint um, having been um, discerned up front. But that's a whole other story. Yeah, and it goes into areas that uh, we don't cover here, but certainly should be looked at. Um, I remember the 9-11 Commission hearings, and they were talking about you know pre-intelligence and Condoleezza Rice. You know, I think they were asking her the name of the memo or something, and she said, Bin Laden determined to strike in America. It's like, how much more of a, of a warning do you need? I mean, when you look into some of that stuff. So it definitely needs to be looked at. Of course, we just focus on the science. Right. The absolute undeniable proof that these buildings were brought down and controlled demolitions. As I said so many times here on the show, the case was made to me 10 years ago for at least a new investigation. And why wouldn't you want it when you have an event right. such as this where thousands of Americans died in a single morning? You want to look at every aspect of it, investigate and reinvestigate to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. Of course, what we've gotten from NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, who are, is the agency that we uh, butt heads with uh, on this issue is a lot of stonewalling, obfuscation, and CYA from them. Of course, we're taking them uh, to court now, and we've been updating our supporters on that. Um, question, you know, was it difficult for you to come forward and put your name to our petition, considering your, your background with the military and uh, just the controversial nature of the entire issue? Uh, no, I think <laughs> I think it's in everyone's interest to have a uh, a clear understanding of what went on, uh, how those buildings came down. I mean, architects and engineers certainly um, have a vested interest in understanding how buildings stand up and, and how they come down. And um, there is not any logic that I have been able to discern. I mean, I haven't read the full 9-11 commission report, but I do know there are enough uh, discrepancies and unexplained um, aspects of that that um, are very troubling and it seems again a logical thing to do that if there's new evidence come to light and modeling that has suggested that things could not have happened the way they were alleged to have happened in that report it's in our interest to have a, a new study and the fact that there's such resistance at every level to allowing this to happen um, I mean, that's not accidental, obviously, but it's it's really unfortunate because it's, it's ultimately um, simply for the engineering and physical aspects. It's important to understand what really happened and, and what didn't happen. Beyond that, of course, there's a whole other level to consider. That's right. And, you know, the, the real rank and file of this country that actually makes it up, puts the products on the shelves at the store and uh, keeps this country functioning. I think the overwhelming majority of them, if they see the evidence, would agree that having a new investigation wouldn't hurt. And if there is more to it, then we have the right to know. These people who jump in front of the camera, try to jump in front of people like us, they don't represent America. They don't represent America any more than a cancer that is taking over somebody's body represents that person. Um, and I think that's an important point to stress here, that the real America is the people out there raising these questions or who at least have no issue 
with what we are doing. And I've seen the, the shift in attitudes. Of course, you know, in the years, the immediate years following September 11th, there was a lot of resistance because people had emotional uh, reactions to what we were saying. But as more time passes, people have found their reason. And, uh, you know, most people will say, well, you know, you, you have a point. It certainly should be investigated if they don't just outright agree with us now after yeah. a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of developments here in this country. Um, so I want to get your perspective on this because we've had a lot of experience dealing with the AIA. I mean, years ago, we attempted to get this issue acknowledged by them. And in opposing it, there were a few architects who spoke on behalf of the opposite side. And they stated all these incorrect facts uh, that showed that, you know, they didn't even jive with NIST's official story. So they were just mm. making stuff up. Maybe not, maybe not consciously, but they had misinformation about even the official story that they were defending. Um, so what's your thought on so many people in the building profession just having a knee-jerk reaction to this issue, but they don't really know uh, the facts of the matter? Yeah, if people are uncomfortable with the subject, I think it's a very natural human reaction to throw up anything that comes into their mind to sort of resist having to, to address it, to, to face it. Um, and I think this is a disturbing subject, both because of what everyone experienced at that time uh, and, and what we've learned um, since then, um, that it's that clearly there's a huge weight <laughs> trying to, whatever the source of it, trying to prevent us going any further with this and trying to um, get to the bottom of what really happened with these buildings for whatever combination of reasons. And that so um, sort of buying into that by saying, well, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a logical explanation, even though there may not be a logical explanation that any of us have heard um, is, is not a surprise. But I do think it's fair to say that neither the uh, American Institute of Architects or the corresponding engineering organization are not terribly progressive or leading edge on these kinds of things. Um, just as our Congress is hardly leading, you know, it really takes a groundswell of people committed to something to get change. It's uh, the, the organizations and administrations are always kind of dragged into this. That, that's human history. And, and I don't think that's any different here. Yeah, and something that we have to remember, and I'm gonna be as unconspiratorial as possible right now in mm -hmm. saying this, is that these things, at the, at the end of the day, they're businesses too. I looked mm -hmm. at a list of speakers for the AIA uh, one year and I don't know if this, these were all the speakers for one particular year, but over the years, they've had people like Kevin Spacey, the actor, Bill Clinton went and spoke at one of their uh, conventions and such. And of course, that's gotta be a big draw, you know, to right. get people at right. these conventions, these big name speakers. And right. so when you start talking about controversial stuff, it starts interfering possibly with getting these big name speakers. And that might just be one element that's factors into it. So a lot of times when you have institutions that have been set in stone for so long, it's so deep rooted, it takes a lot of inertia to try to get them to do something that is out of their comfort zone, because from their standpoint, what good is it for them to, uh, to get involved in something like this? Now, obviously, we do this because we're trying to be altruistic and and um, speak for those who can't speak anymore, the people who died in those towers. So we have mm -hmm. to keep on pushing regardless of whatever reasons are motivating them to uh, to try to bury this issue and not have to deal with it. And uh, that is what our job is here. But it's important to take into account these, um, these concerns that these organizations have and figure out mm -hmm. some argument against them, you know, to convince them that, uh, investigating this and acknowledging the clear problems with this story is a better alternative and it is better for the profession i believe i think it'll turn the architecture and engineering professions into heroes like when people went into space for the first time and went to the moon and all of that a lot of kids wanted to grow up to be astronauts so let's do the same thing for the engineering and architectural um, profession make them heroes um, and it'd be better for america too because uh, just living with this lie is uh not good for uh for people you know it's it's creating i think it's creating a mental illness to be honest that's kind of uh that we're seeing played out over the last 20 years uh now just kind of building off of that though you know putting aside the professional organizations what's the biggest challenge in getting just individual professionals to give this uh to give this topic a fair overview 
I think, as you said, that if uh, people individually are, are provided, you know, let's call it new information or evidence, um, refuting aspects of the, uh, the official story of how, how the buildings collapse, um, certainly architects and engineers will appreciate that and say, yeah, you know, you have a point. Um, it wasn't this way, but getting them to take the next step and say, but I think we need to have an investigation. Um, again, I think probably makes some people feel that they're going to be marginalized by others, that they'll be looked at as, uh, as um, cranks or, or somebody with an axe to grind. Um, and frankly, it's an axe we, we, we all need to be grinding. Um, you know, we, we, it's, it's in our interest to know the truth about about events, particularly such major events where so many people lost their lives and other people, are, their lives are still dramatically affected by it. But but again, getting back simply to the, uh, the engineering, the physics, how buildings go together. I mean, I know you folks know the World Trade Center buildings were an unusual design and they had a center core elevator and stairs and mechanicals, but it was a perimeter, a structure much like a pipe. And, you know, if you take a chunk out of a pipe, that pipe is not going to collapse in a hurry. You have to seriously weaken the, the pipe and, and, and not just at a, at a corner or one side for it to actually bend. And even then, it, it's going to bend. It's not going to collapse. Um, we've had a lot of other, you know, building collapses you can sort of compare to, um, including, the, of course, the condominium towers in Florida. But there was that was pre-stressed concrete, and it collapsed in a very different way. Concrete buildings don't behave the same way as steel buildings. But... Um, the way these buildings collapse, both Building 7 but also the Twin Towers, really doesn't seem to, do, to match the way steel buildings behave. Even if, even if areas of it are deformed by, by heat temperatures and by, by partial building collapse. So the, the whole thing just doesn't seem to match our experience with other buildings that have been in fires and so forth. And those buildings were specifically designed to, to resist aircraft. Right? I mean, everyone knew they were very tall buildings. Uh, a building hit the Empire State Building. It didn't bring the building down. Um, the, I mean, a plane hit the Empire State Building. The fact that planes hit these buildings, they were actually designed to be able to take uh, a certain amount of force from a plane striking the building. And um, it's hard for it to be so precisely um, aimed uh, at, at just the right point that you could bring a building down. And I, I that's the, the whole story, again, doesn't really make a lot of sense but but even if we leave the towers aside and go back to building seven which clearly had no legitimate reason to collapse upon its footprint the way it did it that could not have happened the same day that the twin towers were attacked and it'd be a coincidence i mean clearly those three things were related so once you accept the falsehood of building seven everything else has to be called into question and that's that's a difficult leap for people to make because it immediately implies that there were people involved in planning this for whatever purposes and people had foreknowledge and to do something like that so coldly realizing that many people would lose their lives you know it, i think most people step back and say whoa we don't want to go there um and that's that's the way we react to a lot of things that are stressful or threatening unfortunately is to say we don't we don't want to really look at that yeah, I mean, I've seen people on the other side of this debate stretch their imagination so much that they actually convince themselves of this. I've heard people say the towers were built to collapse if a plane hit them uh, for safety. Well, how does that safe? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. That if an airplane hits it or any kind, you know, if they have some kind of explosion in the building, that you're going to have the building come down and kill thousands of other people when you can just send firemen up to go contain the fire and then rebuild later. That doesn't make any sense, but people will say things like this mm -hmm. to avoid dealing with the hard facts. And that is a great point that you bring up. You have an unprecedented event happen that day from a steel, uh, steel frame high rise collapsing completely because of fire, but it doesn't just happen once. It happens twice, and then it happens a third time later in the day with a with a building that didn't even have an airplane hit it. Ask yourselves, what is the probability of this thing happening? Of this kind of uh, this kind of coincidence three times in one day? It doesn't happen. It only happens if you make it happen, which is uh, because it was brought. They were all brought down with pre-planted explosives. So all we ask the engineering profession and the architectural profession to do is give this subject a fair overview. Look at the evidence. Look at it for yourself, even if you don't want to be public, like Warren here uh, coming out on Freefall. You know, be honest with yourself and proceed with this knowledge. 
you know, and don't stifle people's right to uh, get their papers published in engineering journals, for instance, at the ASCE, or give right. presentations at ASCE chapters, or if a resolution comes up at the AAA, you know, don't sit there and just make up facts to try to stifle any debate on this, because I'm telling you, history is going to prove you wrong. And people, you know, the, the professional organizations can sit there and try to guard the official story like some kind of sacred tower. But the, all the other people on the outside are waking up to this and they're not going to look favorably on the people that tried to... Um, stifle you know open debate and discussion on this in the future i really think the future is going to show that uh uh we were right and i think it's ultimately going to come out in the end i'm always the eternal optimist i get criticized for it but i really believe that i don't do anything to lose and even if it takes a couple more years we're going to get the truth out and it will be acknowledged so let's focus on this here because uh we talked a little bit about your military service i think you have the right to opine on this question Something that I used to hear in the years following the Iraq invasion, and um, you know, and then, then we, I believe, we just pulled out of Afghanistan. I don't know if we have any troops still there or not, but we, the, the general consensus is that we've uh, pulled out of there. But while all that was going on, something I would hear on the streets is that questioning 9/11, one was disrespectful to the families. Okay. We've covered that before, but it was also disrespectful to the military, that it was somehow being anti-American, that uh, somehow raising these questions were putting servicemen in harm's way and feeding into the propaganda of our enemies and rivals overseas. Now, you know, the stereotype is that uh, if you question the government, you're anti-military. I'm not. I, you know, I actually enjoy uh, working with people who used to be in the military service. They seem to be very more, more practical and um, down to earth, but also too, I think it's a good experience personally for somebody who doesn't have a lot going on. My, my issue is uh, using the military when you don't need to and putting people in harm's way. But I'm, you know, I'm not against the military myself. Um, so my question for you is, you know, address this idea that questioning the government, questioning the facts that we've been told about 9-11 is somehow being anti-America or anti-military. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that at all. I think that's a very odd assertion. Uh, the military is very happy to step in and answer the nation's call if it's, um, you know, in nation's defense. But um, I don't think anyone appreciates being sent in or or used uh, just for the for the optics of it. And um, obviously, senior leadership in the military, you know, we take our direction from the civilians. That's the way our, our country is set up. That's the way I think it should be. Um, and if the civilian leadership says, you know, starting with the president on down, Department of Defense, go and do this, uh, the military is going to respond. But to suggest that questioning um, an event that led to military being called up to do something certainly is not is not an American. I mean, we heard similar, I guess, things during the Vietnam War where people said, you know, questioning um, the, what we were doing in Vietnam was somehow anti-military. Um, I don't. I don't think it was that at all. I think it's the the civilian leadership in the country is elected theoretically by the population that votes. The military is not elected. They they volunteer and they're appointed, um, and they're sent by civilian leadership in response to uh, to identified uh, needs. So um, I, I don't think there's any disrespect uh, to the military to, to question um, what happened on 9/11 or any other particular occasion if it happened then to result in military forces being sent somewhere in response. Uh, that's a very a very odd connection that I, I don't see at all. And I suspect that um, few in, in leadership positions in the military would see it that way either. Absolutely. And yeah, I can remember the day after September 11th, walking into the men's room at my university and I overheard a guy talking to another guy at the sink about how, you know, he's actually considering going down and enlisting as a result of what had happened the previous day. And there was a lot of talk like that. And 9-11, for my generation, because I was right at that age where people were going into the military for the first time, and it was people my age who were going out and, and uh, doing the groundwork of, of fighting this because, uh, you know, they weren't, like, high up in, in, the, um, in the status yet in, in the military. 
So it really was my generation's Pearl Harbor event. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, you know, rose up, rose to the occasion. I mean, even people I went to high school with, when they said they were going into the army, we'd make jokes about it. Like, oh God, you're going to defend us, you know? But then actually, they, I mean, they proved themselves as uh, out there and came back very uh, serious, stoic people. Um, so, you know, I see it as these people rise to the occasion when they believe there's a threat, but it's our job to protect them and make sure that they're not put in harm's way unless it's absolutely necessary. And I know as if I was president, I mean, I would take that decision very seriously and it's something that I would feel guilt for for the rest of my life if it turned out that uh, I had, you know, caused people to get injured on either side of the conflict um, over a lie or over, over faulty information. So I would make darn sure that uh, there really was a threat. And knowing what I know now, um, <laughs> I'd uh, I put more uh, energy into um, more energy into investigating these things probably than any other president does. But by the way, I don't plan on running for president. I'm just saying, you know, these are the kind of thoughts that presidents should be having. Right. And, um, you know, so again, we're protecting them. I look at so many people who put their lives on the line over these wars, believing it was a legitimate threat, you know, believing, oh, there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, or that we have to go into Afghanistan to avenge September 11th and preventing it from happening again. And people coming back with their legs missing. Um, you know, I've classically told this story on the show of a guy, of a girl talking about her boyfriend who was over there and she has to cut his meat for him. He got hit by a road bomb and you know she has to cut his meat for him when they go out to the restaurant and you know how embarrassing it is for him and that's going to be a situation that is going to be part of his life forever and so if people are going out there and putting their bodies and their and even their their minds on the line from some of the things they have to experience uh you need to make darn sure that there really is a threat there. And now when we learn all this information, we learn about September 11th, we learn about uh, the fact that uh, the top part of a building can't crush the lower part without slowing down, to sit there and stifle this, to sit there and stonewall and try to uh, attack the scientists and the engineers and the architects like yourself who uh, speak out about this is just absolutely disgusting. I mean, America needs a makeover. And uh, I mean, mentally, spiritually, and culturally. And I think that acknowledging this, even at this late date, would set the country on the right path. And we, we'd be better off for it. You know, we once had slavery in this country. Terrible right. thing. What do we right. do? You know, we talk about the brave people who spoke out against it. Right. And that's how we find our patriotism in that horrible situation. Um, why is this issue important to servicemen specifically? Now, I basically just did a whole diatribe giving my thoughts on it, but if you want to <laughs> comment, uh, <laughs> go ahead. Well, well, 9-11, as you know, was used as a justification to go to war with Iraq. Um, and we know that there were, you know, contingency plans to go to war with Iraq for various reasons before it happened. Whether this directly led to that. Uh, I think it, it, the impl- implication was that it did. Uh, and as was well established since that time, Iraq really had nothing to do with 9-11. But, um, but anyway, that was a, a reason to send people overseas and go to war. And um, that was clearly a, a misadventure is probably the nicest way to characterize it. Many people lost their lives, as you point out, not just Americans, but plenty of Iraqis and other people uh, along the way. Uh, and um, that is, is pretty much viewed as a war we didn't need to fight. I mean, we, we got rid of Saddam Hussein, which the Iraqis may or may not thank us for. I don't know that the country is so much better off today. Uh, he was a brutal dictator, but then uh, we support brutal dictators around the world when it suits our, our needs. So to me, uh, I think uh, to most people in the military, uh, regardless, of how well and with what distinction they served, they'll, they'll appreciate the fact that Iraq was not a war that really did much to uh, stabilize the Middle East or, or advance their interests. But, um, you know, traditionally Iraq and Iran have been rivals, and I was over in the Gulf in, in 1981 on, on that first ship I was on, Destroyer, and we were basically watching a war at the time between Iraq and Iran, and we were trying to make sure that it didn't stray over into Saudi Arabia or any of the countries that we considered friends. But, um, you know, uh, it was it was just one of those things. They, those, those were sort of regional powers and they stabilized each other. And 
when you when you destabilize one, then you, nature abhors a vacuum. The other is going to go in and fill that vacuum. And so Iran has actually gotten somewhat stronger with Iraq weakened. And that's not necessarily working in our favor now. Um, so these whole geopolitical things that are decided by, again, civilian leadership, um, and, and, you know, we move these chess pieces around on the globe, the military is sent in to sort of, you know, enforce whatever decisions have been made. But ultimately, the military doesn't make those decisions. The military just tries its best to do whatever job is assigned to it. But if it's, if it's a job that shouldn't have been assigned because it's not doing anything good for, for us or the people in the region, you have to say, well, what were we thinking at the time? And uh, again, you know, uh, history is military history and history in general is rife with examples of military sent in to do things that they did the best job they could with, but probably wasn't a good idea to begin with. Um, again, it always comes back to, to, to leadership and leadership is supported by by the population that votes. And um, to the extent that so few people vote, it's a relatively few number of people in this country that are making decisions about who's in leadership and who's making the decisions to send people off to war. Um, and that that is truly one of the, uh, the great challenges of our, of our democracy is to get people to participate, even if they don't think it's in their interest, because ultimately it's in everyone's interest. The more people that participate, the more voices are brought to bear and, and one would like to think the better decisions or at least the more well-supported decisions are made for how we employ all of our resources, not just our military, but, but our, all of our resources. That's right. And I don't believe that the people who supported, just the people who are watching TV and then uh, participating in the debates about that whole thing going into Iraq, I don't think the people who supported it, there would have been as many of them if it hadn't been for 9-11. I think a lot of people were spooked. They just watched some crazy stuff go down, um, either in person if they're in New York or on television, but they knew a lot of people died and they had the sense of, well, geez, we can't let anything like that happen again. I mean, you have Colin Powell go out and tell you these are mobile weapons labs. I remember I looked at it and I'm like, hey, look at all those medals on his chest. He must know what he's talking about, right? Of course, as, as uh, history has played out, uh, we didn't get the full truth on that situation, and we're not getting the full truth, of course, about September 11th either. And they can try to marginalize us, but we're going to keep on going and keep on doing broadcasts like this and keep uh, basically stay alive as uh, the system, uh, how do I say this, disgraces itself more and more, and people lose more and more trust in it. Um, all right, jumping back to the architecture side of things, you know, there may be architects who are watching this, may have taken a curious glance at this issue, hearing so much about it over the years, uh, who are watching you right now uh, in the future on a, on a broadcast or a, a taped broadcast of this. Um, what do you have to say to them? If they're considering signing the petition, they might be afraid of putting their name to the 3,500 architects and engineers that we have. Why should they do it? Why should they make the decision to sign? I think, again, any architect and engineer that that cares about building science, cares about understanding, uh, getting a, a better understanding of how buildings behave under stress, um, how they how they react, how they don't react, um, should have an interest in getting the true story. I mean, um, nothing was bigger than these two towers in Lower Manhattan, and the fact that they came down on September 11, 2001. Um, you know, it, it, everyone in the architecture and engineering profession is aware of that, and um, we should we should want to know how they came down and why they came down, because we don't we don't have that information, or at least it's not publicly available and there are plenty of suggestions about how they came down including uh, you alluded to the explosives in the brick buildings but uh, we really we really should have a full investigation a full airing of that even if we don't take it further into to who did it and why which kind of hard to do but but it, we should acknowledge the fact that buildings don't behave this way with the information we have so far so there have to be there has to be additional information that um, made this made this um, happen, transpire the way it did, and it is in our interest to understand that. And I don't think there's any particular risk to signing a petition or or asking for a, a new investigation with new information. But um, I, I do think that you know not everyone's going to want to speak out because again they may feel that someone's going to look at it and, and and dismiss them or marginalize them because. They're talking about something that we all shouldn't talk about, but 
my God, if we don't ever talk about things we shouldn't talk about, we're never going to learn anything new. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think it was Mark Twain, and I always butcher quotes because I can never remember the exact way, exact way they were phrased. But it was something about, like, most of the things that I worried about in life happening never happened. You know, the, the biggest trauma was uh, the worrying, but it never came to pass. And uh, I would say most clients, most customers are not even concerned with this. They're concerned with the product that you're giving them. So as long as you're giving a good product uh, that you've always been giving, you should be fine. And I've never even heard, to be honest with you, um, of people losing work or anything like that because they signed our petition. And I would know that story. I mean, I would remember that story if that had happened, but I have never heard of that. So a lot of it is just smoke and mirrors and bluster. And I say, live genuinely. I, mm. I try to do that. I stay professional, but I do speak my mind and I don't, uh, I don't uh, lie <laughs> about what I'm thinking. People may not like what I have to say on certain matters, but it's the truth. And you can always mm. guarantee that you're getting that from me. So I'm saying that when you, um, sign that petition, you know, you're standing up for your own genuineness. You're standing up for your own integrity and in doing that. And if you have questions, then add your name to that list and you will be just fine. Trust me, you'll be just fine. And uh, you'll feel good about it in the future too, especially when this gets acknowledged. Um, all right. So there may be students out there. Now that is something that I would like to reach young people because they're going to inherit all of this at some point. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be the new leaders and they're always coming up and somebody out there right now who's 10 years old or eight years old or whatever or 15 years old is going to be president someday could be a man could be a woman could be from any part of the country but that person is going to be the future president and uh i like to get the stuff in their minds early so that it influences future decisions that come up why is it important for young people, even architectural students, let's talk about them as well, um, <clears throat> you know, to basically be bold, be courageous, and not be afraid of standing out, <clears throat> even when the media and the, the system and the academia is telling you to keep your mouth shut? Again, the more you know, the more you the more you can learn. And if you don't ask questions, you're not going to learn anything. Um, it, it, there are a lot of debates right now about what's appropriate to teach in schools, and it's like you got to put the information out there. You're, you're just not going to learn anything if you can't ask questions. Um, one of the stories I recall that really struck me, um, and I have great admiration for structural engineers, but William Lemessurier was the structural engineer who designed CityCorp. As I recall, and uh, some years after the building was up, uh, you may have heard the story. Um, a, a student, a graduate student, maybe at MIT, reached out to him and said, "I I went through your calculations of the building, and I, I don't think they're right. I think that building is at risk of falling down." And he, this was a, a structural engineer at the pinnacle of his profession, had no reason to pay attention to a graduate student, but he did. And he said, "You know what? I'm going to look at your information. I'm going to I'm going to check it myself." He found out that he had made some significant errors in his calculations. He went to the chairman of city court at the time and said, we need to get people out of this building. We need to structurally reinforce this building. And they did it. City court agreed. They did it. They worked around the fact that the building was occupied um, and it cost a huge amount of money. And of course, there were lawsuits, but he did the right thing. And city court did the right thing. And all because a structural engineer student came along and said, you know, I don't think something's right there. This is how people learn. And if we don't learn, we're condemned to repeat the same mistakes. It's the oldest lesson of history. So let's take what happened. Let's figure out what really happened and use that information going forward. You know, there's that old bumper sticker question authority. It, it doesn't mean you have to question everything you're told, but it means you have to have a healthy skepticism. You can't accept something because you're seeing it on social media or somebody tells you this. You say, well, that's an interesting point of view. Let me see if there's anything more to back that up. And if you dig a little bit, you don't have to usually dig very far to get, to get other information. And then you make the decision about what's the good information and what's not, or take it a little further. You can follow the, the chain wherever it goes, but, but having an open mind and Questioning accepted facts, particularly when there's serious questions about those accepted facts, is an absolutely essential way that we learn as individuals and as a society and go on to do better things and not to repeat mistakes and, and, and do things that, that are holding us back. And, you know, we hold ourselves back and it's up to us if we're going to move forward. And only if we collectively 
individually and collectively decide we're going to move forward, can that happen? And this is a critical component of that whole way of thinking in my mind. Absolutely. And just because somebody's older than you doesn't mean they always have the answers or are right. You got to think for yourself, protect yourself. I learned that so many times growing up young person and, uh, you know, instances where I even got injured as a result of uh, some boss telling me to do something and I knew it was a bad idea, but uh, that's how you learn. So basically don't be afraid to speak out if something doesn't make sense to you. Um, last question, and uh, this is in response to a bulletin that we just put out. Uh, we had a, it was a great idea by a member of our staff uh, to ask people, why does 9-11 still matter to you? Very simple question, but we got a lot of insightful responses to it. I mean, so many that it's almost uh, like I've, I've been having a hard time keeping up on just giving a thank you response to them. Um, just a huge response to it. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm going to ask you, why does 9-11 still matter to you here 21 years later? Well, I, I'll say I've recently read people saying that was ancient history 20 years ago. We need to move on. It's like, but we can't move on if we don't know what really happened. If we can't face we can't face facts. It's, it, you were mentioning earlier slavery, racism. There's so many things that if we can't face the reality, we can't move on. And we're stuck in a, in a zone where, we, again, as, as individuals, but as a society, as a, as a country, we can't progress and deal with the many challenges we're facing today. We, we know we have a climate crisis. We have so many crises. You know, we have people starving around the world. I mean, you, you run out of, of fingers and toes very quickly to count everything. But the fact that this happened 20 years ago, it, it's still relevant because we, we've never gotten uh, a proper accounting of exactly what happened and why it happened. Um, and it's very hard to say, okay, we're going to pretend nothing ever happened and start today and go forward. That's not the way humans develop. That's not the way our history develops. We need to know what happened in order to have the groundwork to move forward in an effective way, not repeat the same mistakes. We'll make new mistakes, sure, but we can only learn if we have the facts and face the facts. If we refuse to do that, we're dead in the water. And, you know, the jury's out on that. <laughs> Yeah, and I agree with you. First of all, people say it's ancient history. My my God, I'm not that old. You know, it's only been 21 years in the big scheme of the universe. That's barely a blip. But also, too, I mean, just to acknowledge this and make a better America, wouldn't it be nice if the national drama wasn't some bad thing that was going on or some conflict that we were having and everybody's always on pins and needles, biting their nails, worried about what's mm -hmm. going to happen? I wouldn't it be cool if we could just turn on the TV and hear that people are going to Mars or something, get our space program going, have some cool accomplishments once again. That is the America that we need to rebuild with innovation and, um, and just uh, showing how if we all come together from various areas of industry and volunteerism and those kinds of things, uh, the great accomplishments that we can make happen. That is the America that we should have. And that is the thing that we should all be united on, not on protecting a lie. I think America can survive it. And I think that uh, people like you are going to be remembered as the, the great pioneers that spoke out. So thank you so much, sir, for signing the petition uh, for being willing to come out and speak about this freely, and of course, for showing up on 9-11 Freefall today. Thank you, Andy. All right, that's it, folks. Great guest today. Remember, we want to hear your feedback. If you have suggestions for the show, you can go to 911freefall.com or ae911truth.org. Various ways to contact us. Let us know what you think or what we could be doing better. Uh, but for my part, this is Andy Steele saying I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.